This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. In the last decade, we have seen much more reporting on financial matters, partly because of the recession. We have also seen much more reporting about the Federal Reserve due to that recession, the recovery, and monetary policy by the various chairs that have led the Fed in that period of time, as well as the Board of Governors and regional governors as well. Paul Tucker is a fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School and chair of the Systemic Risk Council. He was also a central banker and regulator with the Bank of England for more than three decades. Tucker is also the author of the book Unelected Power, The Quest for Legitimacy in Central Banking and the Regulatory State. And it's a pleasure to have him joining us right now. Paul, welcome. Thank you very much. It's great to be with you. Thank you. So I I will play off of the title of the book. Uh, Should maybe some of these these central bankers be elected officials at this point? No, it would be the wrong solution. But but your question gets to the underlying problem. You know, when, when we were born, the big decisions were taken by the people that we elect. And now too many of the really big decisions are taken by judges or central bankers or regulators. And so... We need, to be, we need to be careful about how we design these institutions, and we need to keep them to a narrow role. So what are the most important things you think we need to consider when, it, looking, it, when looking at these, these central banks, whether it be here in the U.S. or in, in other spots around the world? You know, I think that slightly different problems come up in different jurisdictions. I'll give an example from the U.S. and an example from, from Europe. In, in the U.S., I think the Federal Reserve and its congressional overseers need to get to a place where the Fed isn't suspected, fairly or unfairly, doesn't matter whether it's unfair, suspected of, of lending to institutions that are fundamentally unsound, which is bailing them out. Right. And that's the job of politics, not the job of technocrats. And it doesn't matter whether they did do that. They're perceived by some people on both the right and some people on the left to have done some and they to have done so and they just need to shed that perception and shift their policies and the way they explain their policies um, so that people feel more comfortable with them but but even with uh, i mean i i know that a lot of people i think from having the the focus that we do on using the Federal Reserve here in the United States as the example, uh, we do have a little bit better understanding. We may not necessarily agree with the policies, but we have a better understanding of what they are trying to do, especially, I think, in part because of the fact that that the recession put uh, so many entities kind of behind the eight ball. Yeah, I I agree with that. And um, former Chair Bernanke going on 60 Minutes, I think it was, if you like, talking directly to the American people, I thought that was a good initiative. I, actually, I think that Fed chairs should go on television a little bit more. I don't think they should compete with politicians, um, but they should try and explain what they do to the American people in, in as straightforward a language as, as they can muster. Um, in Europe, by the way, it, things are... Because Europe, I don't mean Britain in this, but continental Europe, because in a sense, it's an incomplete constitutional setup. Right. The European Central Bank has ended up being the guarantor of the whole economic and monetary system, and yet they can never solve the underlying foundational problems. So that, too, is an, an area where, an instance where the central bank has ended up being super powerful, and yet it can't deliver 
prosperity. It can only deliver stability. With your background and the Bank of England, I, I wanted to take a second to talk about uh, what that uh, part of the world is going through right now, especially with uh, the Brexit coming up and obviously the change of a lot of different uh, financial pieces uh, coming up in the next year, we assume. Uh, but in terms of the Bank of England's position, how are they dealing with what is seemingly a, a, a very large problem that, you know, is kind of thrust upon them by the government? Well, um, I mean, reflecting a, a result of a referendum in which the citizens of the UK voted, they need to stick to their basic job, which is, I think, what they're doing, which is um, keep the economy going, keep inflation in line with their target of 2%, keep the banking system stable. Now, that's got more difficult because they don't know what the end what this deal is going to be. They don't know what the terms of trade with Europe or what the rest of the world are going to be. But they can't solve that. They, they need to be, in a sense, responding to what hits them. Um, they, they can't be active players in what is a, a, a political, even constitutional debate between the UK um, and continental Europe and highly, highly charged in domestic British politics. We're talking with Paul Tucker, who is the author of the book Unelected Power, The Quest for Legitimacy in Central Banking and the Regulatory State. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. The idea, though, of a central bank and central banking in general is, I would imagine, is relatively similar it, no matter the country, obviously, as you said, there are there are elements to it that that may be different depending on the landscape that may be going on in a particular country. But the the fundamentals and such are are similar, correct? Um, they are or should be at least right. And in a sense, the idea is simple: that you that you put at arm's length from day to day politics, the politics of both the executive and the politics of the legislature, Congress, Parliament. Um, the task of maintaining the value of the money in people's pockets and in their bank accounts. So this is to do with keeping inflation reasonably low and reasonably stable and keeping the banking system as a whole um, safe and sound so that people, um, the money in their bank account is going to be worth what they think it's going to be worth. That doesn't mean that individual banks can't fail, but that the whole system shouldn't collapse, which, of course, is exactly what happened in 2007. And it happened, I think, because central bankers, and I was one for a long time, um, had done a pretty good job at keeping inflation low, but it hadn't paid enough attention to the resilience of the, of the banking system. But that, that mission is now accepted again um, across the world. But what's changed, and we could go on and talk about this, is the politicians themselves are much less involved in the broad swathe of economic policy than they were a few generations ago. How specifically has that changed? Let's use the United States as an example. What you, you, you think about the, the Great Depression. What, what is the, the face that you associate with um, the United States finding its way out of the Great Depression? Um, President Roosevelt. Yeah. Whether people whether people liked what he did and people didn't like what he did, and people are still debating that, which is inevitable. But that's the face you associate with it. 
So we're 10 years after the crisis, and there are lots of articles and conferences on um, 10 years after. And what are the faces? Uh, which are the faces that come up? Ben Bernanke, um, Fed Chair, Hank Paulson, Treasury Secretary, Tim Geithner, um, later the Treasury Secretary, and before that, President of the New York Fed. I mean, it's a massive change in only a few generations that we've gone from President Roosevelt being the face to a bunch of unelected people being the face of crisis management, rather than um, President Bush too, or President um, Obama. And that's not a point about those men individually, that somehow our societies are now much more reliant on unelected power, as I describe it in my book, than on elected people. And th th this, has had, this has had real consequences. Is it, are we better off because of it? Well, if I compare it again with the 30s, I think the Fed was much faster out of its blocks this time in 2008, 2009, right. than its predecessors were in, in the 1930s. And that, that, that's part of that. And I think that's true in Britain, and I think that's true in continental Europe. And it's why we didn't revisit the part of why we didn't revisit the horrors of the Great Depression. But then what didn't happen after a few years is um, big action by government. To, in the United States, um, I'm one of those who think that um, the government could have come in um, with some fiscal action around infrastructure expenditure, improving your infrastructure right. um, in the Ameri across the American continent. And I think that would have been good for the productive efficiency and capacity of the economy. It would also have meant that the Fed interest rate could have been a bit higher. And, I mean, there have been costs to what the Fed have done. I mean, it's, it's fueled exuberance um, and a bit of a boom in financial markets. Yeah. It's, it's, whilst it's helped the economy as a whole, it's, it's hurt middling people who rely on income from savings. I don't think this is the Fed's fault. The Fed has had no, or all the European Central Bank in Europe, they've ended up filling a vacuum left by politicians. And, you know, we as citizens, I think, shouldn't be comfortable that the political actors, um, well, didn't act. We're joined by Paul Tucker uh, of the uh, Harvard Kennedy School, uh, who is the author of the book Unelected Power. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. You know, you mentioned Ben Bernanke, and, and as much as he is scrutinized, uh, Janet Yellen is, is also scrutinized, maybe, or had been scrutinized as much, maybe even more more than Ben Bernanke was. Yeah, I think this is part of a trend. Um, I'm sure that some of your listeners will remember a book by Bob Woodward of Watergate fame yes. called Maestro yeah. about um, Alan Greenspan, former chair of the Federal Reserve, Alan Greenspan. Well, in a sense, the, the title of that book, I'm not criticizing Woodward, should, should, should make us all cringe. I mean, th these are meant to be unelected people doing a job given to them by Congress. There should be no question of maestro. Um, and in a sense, you get this slightly politicized scrutiny and debate when people think, my God, um, these people are in charge. So then we and, and, and no, one, no one in the Federal Reserve wants that um, at all. Um, but it depends a bit on 
the design of the institution by Congress, being careful in designing the Federal Reserve's powers, and then Congress being prepared itself to be the U.S. cavalry when necessary. So then when you hear the comments that we heard uh, several months ago uh, when Janet Yellen was still running the Fed by President Trump, you know, questioning the path of the Federal Reserve, you sit back and, and your reaction is what? Well, I think that I, I can't remember the comment um, in detail. I think yeah. it was kind of about interest rate policy. Yeah. And, you know, in every country with, um, um, with an independent central bank, occasionally politicians make comments about what the central bank should do. And you, you just have to shrug them off in the sense that you've been given a job by Congress, or in my case, by the British Parliament, They've made you independent of politics. They can take that power away. Um, but so long as the power given to you by the sovereign parliament exists, you can't heed day-to-day commentary from the president or the finance minister or whatever. You just have to shrug that off. And, and I'm, I'm sure that's how central bankers around the world feel about it. The comment he made, uh, to bring it up, actually was, and this was going back to September of 2016, he said, and this is President Trump, well, it's staying at zero being uh, the uh, the interest rates. Uh, it's staying at zero because she's obviously political. She's doing what Obama wants her to do. And I know that's not supposed to be the way it is, but that's why it's low. You know, the, only, the only route through that, I mean, that, that happened in... The United States isn't unique in that. A couple right. of, few decades ago, there was a similar comment by the Chancellor of Germany about um, about the Bundesbank when it was the the biggest central bank in Europe. And the only way you can deal with those kind of comments is stick to your job and explain publicly what you're doing and explain that what you're trying to do is the job that you've been given by Congress or or Parliament and keep it as simple as you possibly can taking into account that the world is a complex place. You talk in the book about a, a money credit constitution, uh, about what central banks and, and institutions can do. Take us into what exactly that you mean by that. Well, I think, I think you know, the, the, the most extraordinary thing about our monetary system is that most of the money all of us use isn't the money that's issued by the central bank. It's money um, created by banks, by private sector banks. And these private sector banks are useful in my view because they take decisions about who can borrow away from the state to, and make it part of commerce. Um, but these banks are fragile. And I think we need to be clearer that central banks have a responsibility and, and Congress has a responsibility for thinking, how do we want this mixed money credit system to work. Somehow we need to allow individual banks to fail, but not the whole system to collapse, as has happened maybe twice in the, in the 20th century. And I don't think we've really paid enough attention to what freedoms should banks have, what constraints should be put on banks, and what constraints and obligations should be put on the Federal Reserve. Even... So even even, I was going to say, even with some of the changes that, that seemingly we uh, we expect that we're going to see with this administration in office about kind of loosening the reins a little bit for some uh, some of the banks. Yeah, when they, I'll say two things about that. First of all, loosening the reins around the community banks, which is part of what um, Congress um, has recently done, I think strikes many people as a sensible thing. Lo- loosening loosening the constraints on the 
the big banks, and I don't just mean the biggest eight or ten banks, but the big banks, that's, that's, not, that's not a sensible thing to do. The United right. States isn't suffering from a, from a lack of credit or, or, or lending. But, you know, a lot of the changes in the, that we made, and I was we in terms of the international community um, in the immediate aftermath of the crisis, these were good changes. But it's, it's, it's no bad thing after 10 years for people to think about uh, were the right things done. What I, what I think is a mistake is to think that there was overshooting on every, every front. On some fronts, there was overshooting, right. hence rolling back on community banks. But on some fronts, not enough was, was probably not enough was done. I mean, the United States still faces a problem in that you've got lots of things that are not banks, but they're not but they're not formally, not legally banks, they could get into trouble in just the same way as banks, and yet they're not able to borrow from the Federal Reserve against good collateral. And this is, people haven't been brave enough to take on the lobbies. And, and unfortunately, it doesn't feel like that, that that will ever occur, that the lobbies will continue to have an, an undue influence that, uh, that they probably shouldn't. I, I think there's a risk of that, yeah. There's a, this, there's, there's a problem that if you get something that is a new activity that is very like banking but legally isn't um, a bank, and initially it's quite small, so you don't feel you need to respond to it, by the time it's become big enough that actually it matters to um, the stability of the financial system, they've also developed lobbying um, power. And I, I've seen that again and again. And actually, if I may say so, I think it's, um, it's particularly a problem, perhaps, in the United States. Well, that, that, then there is an interesting point, because I wanted to talk to you a second about the dynamics between what we know with the Federal Reserve here in the U.S. and what you know from, from, other, uh, from other entities from around the world. How different is the structure of what we have here in the U.S., whether it be, you know, the Fed itself or the FOMC, in comparison to how other countries are? The, the, I'm going to make what sounds like a kind of tiny point, but I think it matters a bit. The, the Federal Open Market Committee, which decides interest rates for the United States, it's, it's quite a big committee. I mean, 12 yeah. voters at any one time, and yep. then I think five or six or more talking. That's, that's too many people to have a proper discussion. Right. And so you tend to see them. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I've ended up thinking that they kind of negotiate with each other via speeches. And I, in a sense, I, actually, I think this is one of the things the UK's got right. Um, um, the committee is nine. It's one person, one vote. Um, they tr- I think they truly deliberate. They change their mind individually in the meeting as they listen to their colleagues. Certainly, I did a couple of times. In continental Europe, it's even bigger. They've, they've, whereas I think the United States may have a problem in that mistake, I'm pretty sure that the continental Europeans um, do. But, you know, a great strength, I want to now tilt that the other way, a great strength of the FOMC is the regional representation. Correct, so right. This, is, this yep. is not an institution that is just from, um, from Washington. It's based around the country. I, I wish that the leaders in Washington got around the continent of the United States a bit more so that the people around the United States saw the leaders a bit more. And actually, I kind of wonder whether the new leadership there won't do that. I mean, I, I, can't, I can simply observe what they've done so far. It's, they strike me, Chair Powell and, and Vice Chair Quall strike me as 
trying to speak in relatively straightforward language that, that the American people can tune into rather than having to read a newspaper to make sense of it. I, I agree with you on those two comments about the FOMC because at times uh, having 12 voices talking about uh, interest rates, it, it's like trying to get a bill passed through Congress. Uh, but, but I also agree that with the dynamics uh, of the United States, that there are market conditions that may be going on in Chicago that may be much different in Minneapolis or Philadelphia or, or you know, some other uh, or Atlanta as well. And so you need to have that understanding of those differences so that, you know, you can you can bring forth all the best information and 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 have the right uh, the right set of tools uh, moving forward. I completely agree with that. I had a, um, a big experience of that kind when I was making monetary policy in the UK in the early 2000s. Um, we were moving towards raising interest rates, and one of my colleagues, in fact, the governor of the Bank of England, Mervyn King, had been out um, around the country talking to people, and they were saying, hmm, lots of people have been turning up from Poland and elsewhere. We've got more capacity in this economy than we thought. And that wasn't showing up in the data. Right. And, you know, the anecdote, the, what the feedback from business around different parts of the U.K. was more accurate than the data. And, this, and if that's true in the U.K., which is, I don't know, fifth or tenth of the size of the United States, but that, that, that network of intelligence that the Fed has around the enormous landmass of the United States is hugely important. Well, then does it make it that much more difficult in your mind to be able to have the, the unification of something like the EU, especially from a financial perspective? Uh, and then that being said, what are the, the roles that you think that entities like the IMF or the ECB are going to have to play as some of these other elements kind of develop in the years to come? I think that the, the euro area um, has a... I mean, I think they've done a good job, at the ECB, but the underlying foundations are weak. Let me give you an example. If I set up a business in, or someone I know sets up a business in Massachusetts, and all of their customers are in Massachusetts, and all of their suppliers and all of their employees, but all of their stockholders are in California, um, the equity holders are in California, and then maybe there's a downturn in the, in the Massachusetts economy, and this firm's a big one, and it fails, and the downturn is bigger because of the failure of this um, firm. But some of the risk is borne by California because of the equity market. And, you know, most transfers of risk across the economy of the United States are done by the equity market, not done by the fiscal authority. But when they're really terrible, then the truth is that there are federal um, support systems for employees, people who have lost their jobs um, around the whole country. In the euro area, there isn't a, an equity market that is cross-continental in the same way. And perhaps even more important, there isn't this catastrophic um, federal insurance um, safety net in extremities, um, and that's what that's what President Macron in France is trying to um, promote. Right, and you know, many of your listeners won't be interested in that, but in a sense, they're 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 trying to do the equivalent of your founding fathers in slow motion because they're not yeah. doing it at the 18th century; they're doing it at the 21st century. Yeah. Paul, great having you with us uh, today. Uh, congratulations on the book and all the best to you with it. And, and thank you for giving us your time today. 
Well, thank you for having me on. Thank you, Dan. Bye-bye. Th- thank you. Unelected Power is the book. Paul Tucker is the author of the book, uh, Unelected Power, The Quest for Legitimacy in Central Banking and the Regulatory State. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.